This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hack. Really excited today because we have with us Johanna Strong, who's a PhD at Winchester. Uh, you may be forgiven for going, oh, the Tudor's done to death, but she does something that isn't. She's a PhD at Winchester and she's looking at the historiography of Mary I, who everyone just calls a nutter and moves on swiftly by, don't they, Johanna? Absolutely. It's one of those, they look at her and go, Okay, well, like, she's no Henry VIII, she's no Elizabeth I, and that's that. But she gets marked as a loon, but I'm guessing as well, I mean, Elizabeth I is is a couple of sandwiches short of a picnic as well, isn't she, with the claiming back of the virginity and and the married to the country, and she's, then, she's not, she's she's got issues too. Yeah, I mean, neither are perfect, but I think it's really interesting that, for some reason, because Elizabeth is on the throne for 45 years, we see that as oh, you know, she just got old and she's allowed to be eccentric. But Mary is like, oh, no, like she's she's just out there from the very beginning. She just becomes the Catholic bogeyman as well, doesn't she? Doesn't she? Yeah, absolutely. Especially as Elizabeth I gets more and more anti-Catholic. Mm. You see Mary become this, like this bogeyman of just, oh, how could you even talk about her? We're not going to focus a lot on pre-1547, just because people, oh, it's just Henry VIII, and oh, he's horrible. Um, <laughs> but Mary is, and there's no wonder, really, that both of them are screwed up because their childhoods were insanity. So Mary uh, starts off as the heir to the throne. She's worshipped. She's a little princess. Then she gets told, actually, you don't exist, and your mother's whole marriage was a lie. Get lost. And then she has the whole standing up to her father thing because she doesn't want to give up the Catholic Church. Um, so she's sort of cast out. Then she's pulled back in again. Then she's put back in the line of succession. It's no wonder she might be a little bit screwed up. Yeah, and especially when you think uh, she's grown up with all of the jewellery and all of the clothes and with her parents' love, and then all of a sudden that ends. And then she's kind of brought back into the spotlight as like, oh, thank goodness you survived the horrible Anne Boleyn, which is how Henry chose to see it. And so she comes back into the spotlight and then just kind of fades away. And then she becomes queen. And people are saying like, oh, she has all the jewelry. She's just so gaudy. And then you think, I mean, if I grew up in poverty and then was handed super nice clothes, I would also wear them all of the time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so let's go to 1547. She's uh, very Catholic. She's unmarried. She's just hit 30. Um, and her very Protestant, very young brother is on the throne under a regency. What kind of woman has she become? She's bright, isn't she? Yeah, she has already, much like Elizabeth, but they both have just this command of so many different languages. Um, she's functioning in Latin. She would understand French. She's obviously functioning in English. She is very educated because she grew up with the assumption that she would be a queen consort. She would get married to a king of another country. And so to be a good queen, you had to know things. And so she's educated and she just happens to be Catholic. Whereas Edward VI, her brother and the king in 1547 is Protestant. And he sets a very, very Protestant agenda. And so she has this already a political ability to say, 
I'd still like to be Catholic. And so Edward VI allows her to have the mass held in her own house for her own household and doesn't extend that beyond his sister. So we already see that she's using this political and kind of book intelligence in order to keep true to herself without explicitly going against the wishes of the king, which is really interesting. It really is. Uh, So you've mentioned what she expected her life to be, because there have, since um, the 1530s, been efforts to marry her off, haven't there? Yeah, absolutely. So that's one of the big things when monarchs have daughters. Typically, in England before this, it was you wanted a son because he would become king of England, and then your daughters would be married off to create alliances. And so pretty much from her birth, Mary is used as a sort of political pawn for marriage. And she's betrothed a few times. And in fact, when she's quite young, she is betrothed or engaged, as we would put it today, to Charles V, who is actually the father of the person she ends up marrying when she's queen. And so from a very young age, she knows that that's her role. Her job, quote unquote, is essentially to be the wife and to give birth and to create many sons for her husband. And so that's seen as kind of her her role in life, and that's what she's taught to do. And so as Henry continues to not have sons throughout his marriage to Catherine of Aragon and Anne Boleyn, we see that Mary and to a certain extent Elizabeth become even more important because they're the heirs presumptive. They are going to be the queens of England unless Henry has a son. And so when Edward comes along, there's a lot of rejoicing in England, but Mary and Elizabeth are still in this political space of essentially needing to be married off in order to ensure that there is stability and political alliances. Yeah. So she hasn't, none of this has come off by the time he comes to the throne. So she's unmarried. She doesn't have this job to do yet. Um, And really she's quite old for the standard of the time by this point, isn't she? In terms of wanting to marry off. So she's like falling in between roles. What does she do during Edward's short reign? She basically stays out of it, doesn't she? Yeah, she very much takes a backseat. She's still talked about. She's still the sister of the queen. She still comes to court and he, and Edward, sorry, he is really loving. I think he loves Elizabeth a little bit more. Um, They are closer in age. They have similar viewpoints on religion, but Mary very much inhabits this role of a mother type figure. Yeah. And so she's still in and out of court. She's still talking to Edward, but there's a very strained relationship almost because they don't see eye to eye religiously. And it's not just that, oh, we could both go to the same service and we just wouldn't agree with parts of it. It's that they fundamentally disagree. And so she takes that as a signal that You know, it's better to live out her life quietly, out of the public eye, kind of out of the view of any of Edward's counselors, and especially the regency who's been put in place for him. So, because this is the thing, because you're dealing with a nine-year-old. Yeah, and he's not a grown-up, is he? No, and so he's this little nine-year-old, and you think, yeah, like a nine-year-old is playing with trucks in the backyard. No, like this. This nine-year-old is in charge of a kingdom, and he's making decisions about it. He's persecuting Catholics, not to the extent that we'll see some others do, but he I mean, there is an agenda to drive down Catholicism in his reign, isn't there? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And the one thing that a lot of people think of when they think of Mary is that she's Bloody Mary because she put in place these policies during her reign where if you were convicted of heresy, you would be burned as the punishment or the consequence. And what's interesting is that Edward was thinking of doing the same thing during his reign. And so that just doesn't happen because he dies, not suddenly, but in a a sense, unexpectedly at 15. And so that policy doesn't get put in place because he dies. 
but he is as fervent about his religious beliefs as Mary is. He just is on the other side of that coin. And so, you know, he's making literally life and death decisions at 9, 10, 11 years old. And you think nobody should have that power. <laughs> he's a child. But the people who are put in as regents, and I know you've talked a little bit about regency before mm. in the podcast of they're put in place to help make good decisions because when children are on the throne, that's not always a guarantee. And these regents are making equally decisive decisions. And, and so we see that there is this, this fervency on Edward's part that is then encouraged by the regency, which then encourages Edward. And so it just builds and builds and builds until all of a sudden, you know, Edward is dying and they go, shoot, what do we do? Because Mary's going to come and undo all of this. Yeah, it's, there is a fervency that's actually directed at Mary as well, isn't there? Because her Catholicism is a problem. He tries to order her to stop it. And there was even a plan to smuggle her out of the country, wasn't there? Yeah, so there was rumors going around that the Spanish, who were closely connected to Mary, of course, Mary's mother is Spanish. A lot of the sympathy and love that Mary gets during her childhood is from Spain and from Spanish ambassadors in England. And so there's there are rumors that there is a Spanish ship waiting just off the coast of England, you know, far enough to be international waters. England can't touch them, but that they're waiting for Mary to be secreted away in the middle of the night and they'll take her back to Spain and she'll live a happy life and be able to be Catholic in public. And ultimately, this doesn't obviously end up happening. But that was a major concern for Edward and his counselors that, you know, Mary is essentially a flight risk. And so how how do they handle that? Because people are very sympathetic to Mary because they agree with Catherine of Aragon. And they feel that Catherine and Mary were so poorly mistreated during Henry and Catherine's annulment that people go like, you can't treat the King's sister like this. You might not agree with it, but we still love her. And so there's that, again, that tension that she's a flight risk, but also you can't just lock her up because she has the status as the daughter of a King and the sister of a King. And you have to treat her with that respect. Uh, it doesn't really happen, does it? Um, I want to know, though, <laughs> how no. at this point, though, is she sitting there thinking, but it's it's cool because he's going to die young. He's not going to have issue. And one day I'll be queen and screw them. I'll just reverse it all. Or at this point, there's how much assumption is there on her part that one day she will be queen of England? I think it's very much that that hope, that desire, but also the knowledge that in Henry VIII's succession documents, which are still the standing documents at that point in Parliament, that unless Edward passed a parliamentary act saying, here are new instructions, Henry VIII's succession will stand. And it says that after Edward, Mary will inherit unless Edward has children and then the succession goes to his children. But if he dies childless, the throne passes to Mary and to any heirs that Mary has, and then it will pass to Elizabeth. And so Mary knows, and especially when it comes to that choice of does she get on the ship and go to Spain, or does she, you know, hold her hands closer to her chest and hope that she becomes queen, there's that knowledge that if she gets on the ship, she is giving up that possibility of being a monarch. And so I think she's not sitting there going, you know, oh, when is he going to die? I just want to be queen. Yeah. I think she's sitting there and she knows that he's very young. He's not married yet. He's not in the best physical shape. Mm-hmm. So even if there was a marriage, would there be children? It's all up in the air. And so she puts kind of all of her eggs in the same basket and goes, I'm just going to sit tight and hope that he doesn't change anything and that I'll be queen. 
And unfortunately for her, that's not quite what happens in the beginning. <laughs> it's not, is it? Because as soon as he does die, tragically, at the age of 15, 16, along comes Lady Jane Grey. And this, oh, God help her, this is a mess, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> so, as I've said, there's the official parliamentary succession is from Henry VIII. And it says that it's going to be Edward, then Mary, then Elizabeth. Edward, on his deathbed, and the jury is still out, in a sense, of how much of this is Edward saying, this is what I want, and how much of this is the Duke of Northumberland, whose son is married to Lady Jane Grey. How much is the Duke of Northumberland, who's the main counsellor to Edward? Is he pushing the buttons and going, here's a sick child, he'll sign anything, and kind of slides the paper into the bed for Edward to sign? And so Edward signs this device for the succession. And essentially it says that if Edward dies without children, which is the case because he's mm-hmm. there dying as he's signing it, it says that the throne will go to Lady Jane Grey and any heirs male that she has. So Edward completely bypasses both of his sisters which for Mary, we can understand it's a political, religious thing. Yeah, but for Elizabeth, it's a slap in the face, isn't it? Absolutely. For Elizabeth, it's this, you know, I've always been nice to you. Like, I was your favorite sister. I'm Protestant. But the sense is that Edward goes, well, I can't give it to the younger sister without giving it to the older sister. And technically both of those parent, both of their marriages were annulled. So both Mary and Elizabeth are illegitimate. And so the throne ends up passing to Jane Grey through kind of a distant granddaughter of a sister of Henry VIII. And so Jane becomes queen and she goes to the tower, which is, I know we think, oh, no, the tower, that's where people get executed. It's also where monarchs go and stay before they're crowned. Yeah. So Jane goes to the tower and is living, you know, the high life as much as you can in the tower. And she's acting as queen. And there's this sense that she's not sure that that's right. She goes, like, this isn't my crown. You've passed over Mary, who's the rightful heir. And she's also a child as well, isn't she? Yeah, she's also very, very young, and she's been very quickly married to Guilford Dudley, who is the Duke of Northumberland's son. And so essentially, Northumberland has control over Edward. Edward dies, and now he has control over Jane and her husband. So it's this kind of, yes, the monarch has officially died, but it's the same person behind the scenes running it. And so the people, the just the general English population, go, well, we'll respect what Edward said because he was king, but that's ridiculous. You can't just pass over Mary. She's the rightful queen. And Mary, of course, is just completely shocked by this. And she goes, no, no, that is my crown. I would like it back. And so she is up at Franglingham. And she rallies her forces. She essentially does the call out of, if anyone thinks that I should be queen, now is the time. We're going to march on London and we're going to make me queen. And there's so much popular support for Mary that Northumberland eventually is forced to go out in London and proclaim Mary queen. And the story goes that he then goes back to the tower and marches into where Lady Jane is and just rips the cloth of estate down from over her. And that's the end of her, what we call nine days as queen, which is technically 12 days. But for the first three days, it was kept very hush-hush that Edward was dead. And so she's popularly seen as this nine days queen. Perhaps unsurprisingly, um, so poor Lady Jane Grey is executed and is no more at what the age of 15? Is she 15 mm-hmm. or 16? Um, so Mary is queen and she starts off, perhaps unsurprisingly, by pardoning Catholics, doesn't she? Yeah, that's one of her first big things is she marches triumphantly into the tower and she's overcome with emotion. And the, the paraphrase of what she says is basically, these are my prisoners. Like, these are 
prisoners of the crown and the crown is mine. Mm. And she's just so happy that she's the queen and she has the power to pardon people who have been in the tower practically their whole lives. We have Edward Courtney in the tower who's in there from the time he's a small child, just because, you know, Henry VIII took a dislike to him and to his, and to his parents. And so she goes and pardons him and he kind of doesn't know what to do because he's only ever lived in the tower. And so that's one of her first acts is to give pardon and to say officially that she's not going to implement Catholicism right away. She's kind of going to get a a feel of the land, but then once she gets going, she's going to put it through parliament and it will be seen as kind of quote unquote parliamentary. Um, and that it's not just her making decisions, but the first few acts are to pardon Catholics, to pardon political prisoners who are in the tower from Henry VIII's time. And then to suggest that she's going to reinstitute Catholicism or at least not make it illegal to be Catholic. Right. Okay. Something else that totally reinforces her Catholic position is the Spanish marriage. But in practice, as a marriage, it's a bit of a joke, isn't it? But it certainly makes a statement. Yeah. So it's it's one of those tricky marriages where Mary decides very early on that she would like to marry Philip II of Spain. And Philip II of Spain is the son of Charles V. And Charles V is the nephew of Catherine of Aragon. So Mary and Philip are cousins, essentially. And so he is, at this point, the most eligible bachelor in Europe. Mm. He is, you know, if you're watching the Bachelor TV show, he's he's the one with all of the roses to give out to decide who he wants to marry. Hilariously, though, like, he's dull and not very nice, is he? <laughs> he's not exactly a peach, but he is the king of Spain. Exactly. Yeah, so he's, I mean, I'm sure he was handsome for the 17th century, 16th and 17th century, but he's not exactly, I think, a looker today. Um, but Mary... He didn't inherit the chin, though, did he? Oh, thank goodness, no. <laughs> it gets much worse later on. <laughs> But he marries Mary, and during Mary's reign, there's a sense of fear that Spain will kind of take over England because in the early modern world, women were seen as subordinate to their husbands. And so what happens to England if Philip is telling Mary what to do as a husband tells a wife what to do? is then Philip really in control of Mary, who's then in control of England. It's terrifying for Protestants, isn't it? Oh, it was horrifying to Protestants. And so there's a massive pushback from the Protestant viewpoint, especially, that Philip is going to come in and he's just going to make England Spanish and that he's going to implement a sort of English Inquisition, much like the Spanish Inquisition. And that all of a sudden life's just going to get terrible for the Protestants. And Mary's on the throne only for about five years. And so we see a bit of the religious persecution as it's starting in Mary's reign. And she puts in place that anyone who is convicted of heresy will be burned at the stake. But by the end of her reign, we kind of see that tailing off. And so people are obviously not being brought forward on charges of heresy, which is essentially not practicing religion how the official people in charge would like you to practice it. Mm. And so people are either just being quiet about it and going about their life however they want, and they think, well, if we just do it quietly, no one will get us in trouble. And it's not really until Elizabeth's reign and that sense that, Protestantism has returned to England that they start to look back and they go, Oh, thank goodness. X, Y, Z didn't happen during Mary's reign. 
And so all of a sudden it's, oh, thank goodness that, you know, Philip was out of the country for so much of her reign. Thank goodness she never had any children. Thank goodness, you know, it wasn't huge persecutions like we see in the Spanish Inquisition. And so there are all of these things that could have happened but didn't. But the could-haves become genuine fears in the Elizabethan era as they look back and go, we dodged a bullet. Yeah, there is no issue from the marriage. It's not for want of trying, is it? No, which is really sad. I think one of the most human aspects of Mary is that there is a prayer book, which she has, which has a page for prayers, essentially for conception and for, you know, having a healthy child and giving birth and living through it, which was a major concern. And this is a tear-stained page in her prayer book, which is just so humanizing that behind this massive historical figure, we see a woman who just desperately wants to be a mother and wants to have an heir for her realm. And she has one, possibly two pregnancies, but they end up being either that she's miscarried very, very, very early on in the pregnancy or that they're phantom pregnancies, which is essentially your body produces all the right hormones for pregnancy. And so you get the morning sickness, your abdomen bloats, like you look and feel pregnant. There just isn't a baby. And so when she first gets pregnant a few years into her reign, she ends up going into confinement. So she essentially goes to Hampton Court and shuts the doors and says, I will have my baby here. We'll make sure that the environment is good so that he is healthy. And then by the due date, there's no baby. And they go, okay, maybe we've counted wrong. And then by the time it gets to about 10 months, they say like, there's, we can't have miscounted that badly. There's just not a baby. And no official statement is ever made. They just announced that the queen and the household are moving palaces, which you wouldn't do if you were nine months pregnant. So it's a clear signal that there isn't a baby. And so then speculation starts and it really builds during Elizabeth's reign as they create this image of, you know, a a crazy monarch that, well, was she really pregnant? Was she just making this up? Um, And then we have a pregnancy again, a, what Mary thought was maybe a pregnancy right at the very end of her life. And the jury's still out on this one as well. Is it have been cancer, couldn't it? Yeah, they think that she's had ovarian cancer, probably, um, which is something that's not really known to the early modern world. They just know she's sick. Mm. And so it's probably not that she miscarried early on. It's probably that these were just symptoms of cancer. Um, But she ends up not being pregnant and not giving birth either time. And then the second one just becomes so much sadder because not only is she not pregnant, she also realizes that she's dying. And so she hasn't left an heir. And so she knows as she's lying there, she knows that the throne is going to go to Elizabeth. And it's in a sense watching everything that she's worked her life and her reign for, she knows that it's going to end. And she struggles to come to terms with that. I think the best I ever saw that captured, and it was considered a bit silly when Kathy Burke took that role in Elizabeth with Kate Blanchett, but just the desperation and the utter misery of knowing it was coming to an end and it wasn't going to happen for her. I thought she did really well but I didn't know that about the tear stain prayer book I mean she's she's living her own mother's nightmare and she's seen what became of her mother because she couldn't give birth to a healthy son yeah and she knows that one of the ways to keep Philip in England is to be pregnant because he stays for a little while after they're married and then she thinks that she's pregnant and he's with her throughout the pregnancy until she goes into confinement, which is a traditionally female space. But Philip is still, you know, on the other side of the door waiting for news. And when she ends up not giving birth 
he kind of goes, okay, you know, how long do I have to wait for this not to seem callous that I'm leaving? And he goes back to his own territories. He does his king thing out of England and he comes back in 1557, 1558 because he's asking Mary for money to go to war because he's gone. He spent all of his money and realizes, oh, I have to go ask my wife, but I can't really write that in the letter. You know, I'll go visit her. Maybe that'll go better. And so, you know, not only is she not pregnant and not giving birth, and that's a personal tragedy for her, she's also, in a sense, lost her husband because he's walked away when there was no child. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Away from this, one thing that we never do is touch on what she... I mean, she had a short reign. There's only so much you can do in five years. Foreign policy, unsurprisingly, Britain is completely led by Spanish interests at this point. Yeah, I think yes and no. Um, I think a lot of it is that Mary's very sympathetic to what Spain wants. And of course, you can't really go against your spouse, even if Mary, you know, had been the man and the head of the marriage. You don't really go against what your spouse's country is doing. And so, yeah, like she backs him up when Spain is going to war with France even though there's a history in England that, you know, France is the enemy and yeah, let's get France. Um, But she really backs Philip up on this. But one of the things that I think the last year has really shown us is there is some speculation that Mary might also have died from complications from the flu. And so there's a really, really bad flu that's going around in England in 1558. And somehow through all of it, we don't get the 1558 version of anti-maskers. We don't get that huge public uprising to say, you know, this is all a hoax. I will continue to go to the market. Is people realize like, this is dangerous, cool. And they listen to her. And so we don't see that public rebellion that often comes with you know, flu and famine. And so when people are sick and hungry, we don't see the rebellions happening that we see in other countries. I think especially I think of France leading up to 1789 and the whole aspect of part of the reason for rebellion and revolution is people are hungry. The harvests have failed for multiple years in a row. And so they eventually blame the monarch which could have happened in England in Mary's reign, but it doesn't. And so we see that she's somehow negotiating that England is still an international power, albeit somewhat tied to Spain and to Philip. But it's also domestically very strong, which is really surprising given how Mary's remembered. We think that these must be five years of just abject terror for England. Mm. And they're actually very stable years which is that's despite horrible weather um it's a very wet five years isn't it in terms of yeah and yeah so it's yeah it's not the best weather wise but people are are relatively happy and so it's one of those nothing big happened moving on um which is great because people then don't look at her reign as just an overall failure 
But then it also means that they kind of go, oh, you know, it was wet. People were hungry. There was some persecution. Moving on. Yeah. It's a double-edged sword there. Let's get to the point of your research and Bloody Mary. What really interests me is the fact that Edward had forcibly tried to stop her being a Catholic. But she's been told, you cannot have freedom to worship as you choose. And yet, the first thing she does, she doesn't really stand by it, but the first thing she does is issue a proclamation essentially giving people religious freedom, doesn't she? She's not going to force them to follow her lead. Yeah, yeah. The official first religious stance of Mary's reign is that she will continue to let people worship as they want until Parliament decides what the official line will be. And so that's essentially tacit permission for Protestants to keep being Protestant and for Catholics to put out all of their their services and their, essentially the, the rights and the vestments and all of the accoutrements that go in the chapel, she gives tacit permission for all of that to come out of hiding. And so she starts off, you know, really on an even keel, trying to keep everyone happy. And I think a lot of what happens is, I think she's hoping that people will turn away from Protestantism and that they'll turn away from everything in Edward's reign and they'll come back and they'll realize, you know, Oh, we were so wrong. Let's go back and do things how we should have been doing them. And I think she's hoping that by giving people a choice, people will go, Oh, thank goodness. I don't have to pretend to be Protestant anymore. And I think as she realizes, you know, people are leaving to go to Protestant countries on the continent. She's realizing that, England is a lot less Catholic than she thought or that she had hoped. And so we also get a lot of Protestant and reforming ministers who are speaking out very vocally against Mary because they don't think that a woman should be in charge of a country or the head of the church. And so as Protestant voices become more apparent, she starts to take a harder line because they're threatening the stability of her reign and they're threatening her as a monarch. And so she takes that line of, listen, you have to be Catholic. That's just how it is. And so where it gets a little murky, I think, is that often people just see this religious persecution and the burnings as something awful. And of course it is. Of course, you know, nobody should be persecuted for their religious beliefs. But unfortunately, in the early modern world, that's not how it was seen on either side of the Christian debate. And so Mary, as a devout Catholic, genuinely believed that by stopping people from practicing Christianity in a Protestant way, by stopping them, she was saving their souls. And so if that meant that they were dying, well, dying is better than going to hell because you haven't believed in the Catholic faith. And so she sees at the executions by burning as a sort of religious saving grace, that she is saving people's souls and stopping them from practicing, quote unquote, wrongly. And so I think a lot of it is just this different understanding of religion and what's right and what's wrong And I think a lot of the time we try to put our modern view on it. And that's not to say that it wasn't horrific for those who were convicted of heresy or who were executed, but it's a very different perspective that Mary and the early modern world as a whole was taking. And I think it often gets sensationalized. And so that's part of what I'm trying to do in my PhD And in my research is to look at a lot of why has Mary become who she is in history books? Because there's been a lot of work recently by what we call the revisionist Marian historians who have looked at how she's remembered and they've gone, well, this can't be right. And so they go back to the primary sources. They go back to what was being written 
in her reign. Mm. They say, okay, you know, maybe we need a different view. And so what I'm interested in is how do we get from this very traditional Mary is bloody Mary, that's all you need to know, to this idea of Mary as a powerful queen and as a monarch in her own right who stands her own ground, even though she's Mary. And so it's looking at essentially the 400 years in between to look at why has Mary become this bloody historical figure and why is that now being untangled? And a lot of that, I think, is because of her religion and because she's a queen in what has been officially a man's role. And that she's trying to negotiate her English identity with her Spanish roots. And so it's just this very complex, always changing personality in a way that is used and manipulated by Elizabeth I and her regime, by James VI and I, by William and Mary to a certain extent in 1688, that the Mary that is the true Mary of her reign gets changed as history happens. And I'm looking at the process and why she changes over those years. I think it's important to say that as a person in her own lifetime, she didn't diverge from the original beliefs, those beliefs that caused her to stand up to the act of supremacy and not declare her father head of the Church of England um, and renounce the Pope. She refused to do that as a very young woman and it caused a rift with her father. And so it's not a knee-jerk reaction to Edward's reign or anything that's come in between. It is a stance she holds her entire adult life, isn't it? Absolutely. It's something that, in hindsight, people should have gone oh, well, she she did say she was going to do this, and now she's done it. And so it's just so strange when I look back at it, and everyone in Elizabeth's reign just seems so outraged, or so many people seem so outraged. And you think, you know, Mary defied her father. She defied her brother. What made you think that when she got to the throne, she was all of a sudden going to be fine with Protestantism? And she also didn't just go, yeah, I'm going to burn some people. I mean, Thomas More, he started this, didn't he? He was burning Protestants in the reign of Henry. I mean, he's a saint, and yet he set fire to Protestants. And yet she does it on a larger scale, admittedly, but she is a reigning queen and he was not. Um, And they are massively different in how they're remembered i i personally think thomas moore was horrible um but the remembrance he's a saint and she's bloody mary absolutely absolutely and i think it's really interesting that we have not only like the gender aspect of that of you know a man taking power that's fine but for a woman to do this and for a woman to put in place capital punishment like that's horrible and you think okay, well, that's a double standard. Um, I mean, it's an icky standard. It's setting fire to people and it's horrible, but (laughs) it's in the context of their time. And it seems that it's okay for him to do it, but not okay for her to do it. Absolutely. Yeah. As you say, it is, it is definitely not a good standard. Um, But we, we, we can't change (laughs) their standard, their standard, the most awful thing they could think to do to you to save your soul and correct this hideous wrong as they perceived it is to set fire to you. And that's what it was. And we can't change that. Yeah. Yeah. And what's really interesting is as we look at Elizabeth I's reign, anyone who in Mary's reign would have been executed for heresy, Elizabeth and her regime kind of move that goalpost a little bit and they switch that definition so that under Elizabeth, being a Catholic is seen as being against the monarch because somehow your loyalty is to the Pope and to foreign powers. And so all of a sudden being Catholic is being against Elizabeth, which when it boils down to it is the definition of treason is being against the monarch. And so, whereas Mary executes for heresy, Elizabeth executes for treason. This is the thing as well. Mary is, as far as she's concerned, and we're not saying we agree with you, she's 
<laughs> save uh, she, we're not saying we agree with her she's yeah. saving your soul what's elizabeth doing when she kills another queen absolutely and yet she's not remembered as a monster well maybe in scotland but she's not <laughs> remembered as a monster for cutting off the head of mary queen of scots in what is a purely self-serving act yeah yeah and so it's it's so interesting to look at you know one queen who gives the precedent to the next and one of them is a villain and one of them is a hero of history and you think like, hold on, they both did similar things. We wouldn't do them today, but, you know, in the context. And somehow one is just the devil and one is a saint. I think it's important to say that the person at fault at the begin at the bottom of all of this is Henry VIII and Thomas Cromwell. Yeah, I mean, if you don't... <laughs> I mean, they had absolutely wrenched and ripped up the fabric of the country and left it in complete turmoil, hadn't they? Yeah, yeah. And the further that the Reformation goes and the longer that there is this religious divide, the further it becomes that you're either very Catholic or very Protestant or you're somewhere in the middle and you're really quiet about it. But there are these two extremes that come head to head. And so one of them, in a sense, has to win because otherwise you have just a a country in gridlock. And so because it's the Protestant side that has won in the sense that, you know, all of the monarchs since Mary have been, except for James II, have been Protestant. Mm. It's, there's that ability to look back and go, ugh, the Catholics, there was just, you know, one or two, that's fine. We'll just write them out as the weird ones of English history. It is like history is written by the victor, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. And we see that especially in how Mary is remembered in Spain. She has uh, an underground, their version of the tube, a station named after her. She has a street named after her. And how is she remembered in England? She gets a London dungeon exhibition that is horrifying and the advertisement for it is so bad that it gets banned because it's just not appropriate for the public. And you think, well, hang on here. How did that happen? I think it is very interesting. I mean, she certainly, so people have been trying to rehabilitate her sort of since the 80s, haven't they? To what extent have they succeeded, do you think? I think in the academic world, they have absolutely succeeded. I think whenever an academic comes out with the traditional Mary is Bloody Mary and was a terrible queen, a lot of people in the room will go, well, actually, you know, here's ABC authors and historians that say differently, and here's the historical evidence. But I think in the popular imagination, we're not quite there yet because, like, for all intents and purposes, this figure of Bloody Mary is a lot more interesting. You know, it's something, what we would call clickbait of, ooh, like, yeah, I want to learn more about that. But if you go, you know, oh, well, she was stable and just had some bad policies. People don't, that's not as exciting. And so in the public mind, that's how she's been taught for so long that it's so hard to undo that. And I think the more that we talk about it and the more that these revisionist histories and these this rehabilitated Mary come into it, I think we're changing perspectives. But there are still absolutely people who I'll tell them what I study and my perspective and they'll go, oh, but she was just bloody, wasn't she? And you go, oh, I just told you my entire research. And- <laughs> <laughs> But it is, it's like, it's, we're still paying the price, aren't we, of a 50 year reign of her sister, who was the polar opposite of her, getting to put her PR spin on it. Absolutely, absolutely. And so many things that we praise Elizabeth for, like for being married to the realm. Well, when Mary was facing Wyatt's rebellion in the first few years of her reign, which was a rebellion essentially going, we don't want Philip as our king. Mary goes, listen, I've never been a mother, but 
if I were a mother, I think the love that I would have for my child is the same as the love that I have for each and every one of you. And my coronation ring is my wedding ring for England. And so she's in the same way, she's the mother and the wife of her country in the same way that Elizabeth is. And her marriage negotiations actually are used when Elizabeth is looking at husbands because they figure, you know, Mary's went relatively well, kind of politically speaking. Why don't we just use that? Because it worked. And so we have this Elizabethan figure who is building very much off of Mary, but then, you know, makes sure that the heel is ground a little deeper into Mary to make sure that Elizabeth and her era come out on top, which is really, I guess, surprising, but just a weird quirk of history. Thank you so much for coming along to get to try and get people to look at history in a different way. Um, I'd always wondered if like, because I don't know much about her. Um, and obviously she is just bloody Mary and no one really remembers her as Mary the first at all, do they? No, uh, no, so, as, as there someone are... said to me, like it's, it's Mary the misjudged maybe. But I like that. I'm using that. <laughs> <laughs> as someone whose job it now is to go and research all of the historiography on Edward the Eighth, uh, I'm going to be hitting you up for chat. Definitely. Uh, Absolutely. This, yeah, this has been brilliant. So thank you. Yeah. Join us tomorrow. We'll be talking to the fabulous Katja Hoya. Not only do we learn all about Germany from the time of the Duke of Wellington and the Battle of Waterloo all the way up to the unification in 1870, but she also explains to us what the sausage equator is in Germany. And I have to say that based on her biased description, I'm staying on the north side of that line. Find out all about it tomorrow. Thank you so much for having me. Don't forget that we do exist on Patreon as History Hack and on Patreon as well, which is Podbean's own version. Uh, Alina and I have had massive fun doing this in 2020, uh, but life's going to change quite a lot next year and we're going to actually have to go and earn a living, etc. If we want to keep up the regularity that we've been bringing you and the kind of guests that we've been bringing you and the workload, then we will need your help. So uh, if you join... There's going to be incentives for joining on either of those platforms. We're revamping ourselves on both of them. So don't forget to go in. You can do as little as a dollar a month and it all goes towards keeping up History Hack as regular as we've been able to bring it to you this year. We are now on YouTube. We are posting all of our new episodes on there and we have our own channel and we are gradually posting all of the back episodes because we have been made aware of the fact that you can only find the last hundred on some platforms. So you can go and listen to your heart's content and laugh at the cartoons and have a great time. So do go over there and subscribe. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.